But before we begin, would you join me and let's ask for God's blessing. Lord, we thank you so much for the worship today. And Lord, we thank you for your word, how it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, you've promised that through your word we can avoid pitfalls in this life, that we can be encouraged to overcome, that we can find keys and answers for life's difficulties. Lord, that through your word we can live productive and happy and holy lives. Lord, we thank you so much for the the wonders of your word, and we pray this morning that as we revisit a time and place in history, things that happened on this earth, lessons that you taught your people of old, that we can glean from those lessons today. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your great love for us, and that we rejoice, and it gives us cause to thank and worship and to study and grow. So we pray now that your spirit would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. The Navy SEALs are an elite special ops unit of the United States military. SEALs is an acronym for Sea, Air, and Land. Navy SEALs are involved in reconnaissance missions and counterterrorism and unconventional warfare. Danger is the job description. Hey, a SEAL is one tough hombre. And it goes without saying that becoming a Navy SEAL requires some rigorous training. Typically, 70 to 80% of incoming recruits drop out before completion. Their most intense training involves 132 hours of continuous physical exertion. They call it Hell Week. And a key component is the O course, the world famous. O course, or obstacle course, is this gigantic sandbox filled with telephone poles, ropes and guide wires, 50-foot nets, barbed wire, 25-foot high walls. The O course requires climbing and jumping and crawling and swinging and pulling and hanging and sprinting through soft sand. In fact, the slowest trainee is required to wear a pink t-shirt that reads, Always a Lady. Apparently, humiliation is part of the motivation. You see, the Navy SEAL's O course is designed to push a sailor beyond his limits. It forces the recruit to break through boundaries and overcome barriers and achieve what were once unreachable goals. SEAL training forces a soldier to go longer, climb higher, swim further than he thought was ever possible. And when a Navy SEAL graduates from training, trust me, he becomes a person of influence with a capital P-O-I. A Navy SEAL becomes influential wherever he's assigned. SEALs have gone on to become astronauts, CIA and FBI agents, corporate CEOs, U.S. senators, even state governors. And the person we've been discussing the last few weeks, the POI, the person of spiritual influence, goes through training similar to a Navy SEAL. You see, a Christian who influences the people around them has learned to press beyond what they thought were their limits, physically, socially, mentally, spiritually. It's their habit to bust through barriers. 
Over the last two Sundays, we've noted habits of influential people. We've listed two. They make preparation and they seize opportunities. Today, we want to add a third to that list. People of influence overcome barriers. This is what we learn in the book of Joshua. In fact, you could make a case for viewing the events in this book as sort of an obstacle course. The book of Joshua is the O course for spiritual seals. Rather than walls and nets on the beach, Joshua and the Israelis were required to overcome cities and giants and hidden sin and unbelief and fear and compromise and marching armies. Their conquest of the land that God promised was filled with barriers and obstacles that they had to overcome. And the first barrier, perhaps the greatest barrier of all, was a swollen river called Jordan. The springtime runoffs were overflowing its banks. Joshua 3 recounts how Joshua and Israel crossed the Jordan River into a land of milk and honey. And if we probe deep enough, we can learn how to break through the barriers in our lives that keep us from God's richest blessings. Well, let's begin here in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, proving he was not a musician or a banker. He rose early in the morning. Apparently, he was a golf course worker. And they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. Now, up until now, the Israelis had been camped in a grove of shade trees, some acacia trees. The Hebrew name of the place was Abel Shittim, or Grove of Acacias. Acacia Grove was the 42nd and the final campsite of the Hebrews since leaving, leaving Egypt. It's been a long journey. I mean, for 40 years now, the Israelis had posed as a band of nomads and wanderers, the homeless nation, you might call them. Fear had kept them from crossing the Jordan River and possessing the land of plenty that God had promised. They were afraid to face their foes. Yet now Joshua breaks camp for the last time. And he marches the three million Hebrews about four or five miles to the swollen banks of this river. He readies the Israelis for a little sea, air, and land training. Notice verse 2. So it was after three days. Now Joshua sits his people down directly in front of the river. They stay on the banks of the Jordan for three days. For a whole weekend, they just stare at this ominous river. Understand, for 40 years, for a whole generation, this skinny little tributary had represented Hebrew failure and fear and unbelief. The sea in Egypt, it was no match for the power of God and the faith of Moses. But for some reason, this Jordan River proved to be a far greater barrier It was an impenetrable boundary that kept Israel prisoner, like an unscalable wall. This was the hurdle on God's oak course that they just couldn't get over. I hope you realize life is full of obstacles. Even as Christians, at times we hit a wall. A wall too stout to push through, too high to climb over, too wide to work around. Let me ask you, what's the Jordan River? in your life. 
Think of an infantry man in Iraq caught in an ambush. A roadside bomb blows up his Humvee. Now he's lying in a hospital bed and he looks down at the two nubs where legs used to be. He's looking at his Jordan River. An unemployed father with a family to feed hears that a local company is hiring. He gets up early to turn in his resume. When he arrives, he he finds a line of 500 people vying for just a few jobs. That long line is his Jordan River. A barren young wife who longs for a child stares in disbelief at her home pregnancy test. Another negative. She's disappointed. She's crushed, in fact. Why can't she conceive? Infertility has become her Jordan River. A middle-aged woman hears her doctor's diagnosis, cancer. And all she can hear reverberating in her head is the C word. Her mind starts racing. Will I die? How long do I have to live? This disease is now her Jordan River. Maybe it's a placement test you've struggled passing. Or medical bills you don't have the money to pay. Or a house you need to sell, but you can't find a buyer. Or a marriage that's on the rocks. An impasse has occurred. Perhaps it's a teenager who's out of control that you can't reach. You're facing a barrier just as big in your eyes as the Jordan River was to the Hebrews. How can I get past this challenge? How can I hurdle this obstacle? Is this the end? Or will I drown? Or will I make it to the other side? You see, for three days, Joshua positioned these Hebrews right in front of the Jordan River to contemplate this question. Notice, for three days. And for three days, Jesus' disciples were gathered in the upper room. The facts were before them as well. In full view, Jesus was dead. He was buried in a Jerusalem tomb. They too were facing a Jordan River. You know, when you take, or when you go with us to Israel, there's a day when we drive the length of the land. We take Highway 90 that runs parallel to the Jordan River. It's about a four-hour drive from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. And so all afternoon, you get this long look at the Jordan River. And some of our passengers have a hard time with this story. You see, today the Jordan River is not much of a river. It's more like a creek or a stream. And people ask, why was it such a big deal to cross this river? I mean, just roll up your pants legs. This is especially true at the place Joshua crossed. There's a location just north of the Dead Sea known as Bethabara, which means house of passage. At Bethabara, the Jordan River is just a trickle that you can easily swim. You see, Israel today uses the Sea of Galilee to irrigate its farms and its groves. And irrigation has turned the land into a breadbasket, but it's also severely reduced the flow of the Jordan River. So little water flows through the river now that the Dead Sea is drying up. Its southern end is actually turning into salt flats. Since the ancient Israelis weren't as skilled at water management in Joshua's day, the Sea of Galilee was much larger, and the volume of water flowing out of it through the Jordan River was far, far greater then than it is now. When Joshua and Israel inspected the Jordan, they saw a mighty river. Verse 15 tells us that it was springtime. It was the time when the snow on the mountains northward in Lebanon and Syria had begun to melt. 
the runoff was causing the Jordan River to swell and overflow. In the spring, the river was five times its normal size. The Jordan River was far more formidable to Joshua than it is today. So here's our picture. Israel is facing a barrier now that has haunted them for 40 years. God wants the Hebrews to stare at this river until they're convinced of the impossibility of overcoming it without his intervention. Joshua has the responsibility of transporting 3 million people, including women and children, to the other side. But God was responsible for the river. I'm sure Joshua had an inkling of what God was up to, that he was up to something special. Israel on the edge of the Jordan was on the verge of a miracle. But before God works wonders, he wants his people convinced that he alone is able Well, verse 2, so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. Now you remember the ark of the covenant that sacred box that Indiana Jones rescued from the Nazis. You remember the ark. The ark represented the presence of God. It was a small chest with a golden lid that sat in the inner sanctum of the Hebrew tabernacle. The glory of God hovered over the lid of the ark. Joshua here adds, he says to the people, do not go near it, the ark that is, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. A cubit measured about 18 inches, which means 2,000 cubits equals about 3,000 feet. The people stayed roughly three-fifths of a mile behind the Ark of the Covenant. And God's spacing allowed everyone in the camp to see the Ark for himself. It was far enough in front of them, but not too far, for all the eyes to be fixed on God's presence. You see, the Hebrews had looked at this dreadful river for three days, But once they start to move, God wants all eyes fixed on him. Now he continues the instructions. Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And this is vital. Notice Joshua doesn't tell the Hebrews to practice their swimming, or build a canoe, or buy a set of flippers, or purchase those styrofoam noodles to stay afloat. Crossing the Jordan River would take a work of God, nothing less than a miracle. Their part was to renew their commitment to Him. See, this word sanctify, it means to set apart for special purpose. All Israel can do to prepare for God's miracle is to check their hearts. How fresh is their commitment? How real, how sincere is their willingness to do whatever God asks? Is their life reserved for God's purposes or are they doing life their own way? I won't forget the night I sanctified myself for the first time. I was driving home on Five Forks Trickham Road next to the old railroad depot. And that's when I pulled off the road and knelt in the gravel parking lot and committed all I had and was and ever would be to Jesus Christ. And you know, it wasn't long thereafter that barriers in my life started crumbling. Well, Joshua continues in verse 6. Then he spoke to the priest saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and cross over before the people. 
So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know that, I, that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Now the Ark, it had islets on its four corners. And rods would slip through the rings so that the Levites could carry the ark on two poles. And God's instructions to these men were strange and they were specific. They were to bring the ark to the water's edge. Then step out with the ark into the rushing water. Now God makes no promises until they step. He doesn't peel back the waters before they step. God says, take a step and he'll work a wonder takes faith. In verse 9, he instructs the nation. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites, seven nations, are about to be evicted from this land. Joshua is saying to Israel that once you cross the first hurdle, once you break through the initial boundary, all the others will topple like dominoes. Learn to walk by faith and no barrier is impossible to overcome. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. You remember the Red Sea split right down the middle, but the Jordan River stood up on end. Verse 14. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. Notice this, the moment the priestly toes dip into the river's edge, the waters which came down from upstream stood still. And rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. The Jordan River sucked back and it stacked up. Adam was about 16 miles north of the crossing, about 20 miles north of the Dead Sea. At Adam, the river banks are 40 feet high. We marvel at the Hoover Dam or Buford Dam even. Here God creates an invisible dam that holds back the waters until Israel can pass through. And so the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had come cross completely over the Jordan. Notice again, the miracle doesn't occur until the priests who carry the ark, the symbol of God's presence, stepped into the water. 
I mean, it looked like they might swim, but not when they carried him to the water's edge. It's always him that prevents the swim. Hey, God will never let us down when we're willing to step up in faith. Now, each week in our series of studies, I'm hammering home one important point. My goal is to note the habits of influential people. And today's habit is this. A POI will overcome barriers. He refuses to succumb to limitations. She goes beyond her boundaries to places she's never been before. Georgine Johnson is a 42-year-old secretary. She jogs recreationally to stay in shape. Recently, she entered a 10K race in Cleveland, Ohio. But you see, Georgine, she made a mistake. She arrived 15 minutes early. The 10K, or the 6.2-mile race, starts at 845. But the starting line is also used for another race, the Cleveland Marathon. Its 26 miles begins at 8.30, the time that Georgine showed up. Georgine was one of 4,000 runners, so it took a while for her to realize her mistake. In fact, she was four miles into the marathon when suddenly the course divided. And as the runners started to leave the downtown district for the suburbs, Georgine realized she had made a terrible error. In fact, she recalls, I got that sick feeling that possibly I was in the wrong race. Prior to Georgine's accidental marathon, the furthest she'd ever run at one time was eight miles. But here's what ensued. Rather than quit, Georgine Johnson kept running. She made a spur-of-the-moment decision to run a marathon. She allowed the unexpected situation to push her beyond her limits. And amazingly, Georgine finished 83rd in the women's division. Her respectable time was four hours and four minutes. Georgine pushed through, and she broke down a barrier that she had no intention to overcome. You see, this may be your situation. You didn't sign up for the sudden challenge you face. Difficulties have been thrust on your shoulders that you never wanted. Hey, sometimes the greatest challenges in life are unexpected. You've raised your kids, but now you're being forced to raise grandkids. You're at the time of life when you expected to be a granddaddy, but your new blended family has added a toddler and a tweener to your world. Well, you saved up quite a nest egg. You were ready to retire. But now with the crashing economy, you've seen those mutual funds vanish. Instead of retirement, you're now looking for a job. I'm telling you, life can throw some mean curveballs. You get stretched beyond your limits. Your back is against the wall. You sign up for the 10K and you end up in a marathon. Now what do you do? There's a Jordan River in your life. Is it still possible to cross over? And the answer is yes. And the means is the same for us today as it was for Joshua and the Hebrews. I want you to write down with me five bullet points. I want you to write down these five points. Here's how you cross a Jordan River. First, you admit that you need a miracle. Second, you see the problem, but you fix your eyes on God. Third, rather than waste energy, sanctify yourself. Fourth, 
wait on God to reveal specific instructions. And then fifth, step out in faith and dare to get a foot wet. Hey, before God rolls back your Jordan River, he'll first bring you to its banks, just like he did the Hebrews. And he'll have you stare it down for three days. He'll give you a good long look at what you're up against. Perhaps with the help of an accountant or a marriage counselor or your checkbook even, suddenly you realize the severity of your situation. This current is too swift. This river is too deep. These floodwaters are too broad. Without God's help, I'll never cross over. I'll drown. You know, in addiction circles, people talk about when a person bottoms out. You might hear someone say, I don't think she's hit bottom yet. You know, when the downward trajectory of a person's life reaches sort of the lowest point on that curve, it's then that often a light turns on. Like the prodigal son, the boy was feeding hogs. He was in the pig slop when it says he came to himself. In other words, suddenly it hit him. His father's servants enjoyed a better life than his miserable existence. And it was at that exact moment that the boy started home. You see, overcoming a barrier begins when you admit that it's more than you can handle on your own. God, I need your help to cross over. Whether that realization takes three days or three years, it's the conclusion you have to reach. You see your problem and your inability to break through, but then you get your eyes off the flood and you focus on the presence of God. It's like a golfer. You see, a golfer, he looks down the fairway. I've been watching the PGA the last couple of days, so this is fresh on my mind. The golfer, he looks down the fairway, he examines the distance, he looks at the hazards, he checks out the direction. You know, there's so much into selecting just the right club. But once it's time to strike the ball, that golfer has to commit to the shot. All golfers know the key to hitting a good shot is to keep their head down, watch the ball, watch the ball leave the head of the club. If you try to sneak a peek at the flight of the ball too early, you won't make good contact. And this is also faith's approach. Yes, look at your circumstances, what you're up against. Faith isn't oblivious to the barriers. Real faith is never blind faith. It sees obstacles until it's time to move. And that's when faith shifts focus. Faith moves your eyes off the flooding waters and puts them on the ark of God standing in the waters. You see, in the planning stages, faith weighs the details. It examines the facts. But once faith goes on the march, it becomes enamored with God. It focuses on Him alone. It tracks with His presence. Faith keeps its head on the ball. It even becomes myopic. It becomes tunnel vision. And usually such narrowness is dangerous, but faith is always safe when God is in its sights. If you want to overcome barriers, now is not the time to be weighing your options and sending out feelers. You break through barriers and you possess new territory and you grab hold of blessings by keeping your attention focused on God. Israel saw the flooded river, but fixed their eyes on the ark in the middle of the river. 
And the key to our faith is to focus on God in the midst of our trial. And here's where focus can keep us from wasting energy and effort. You see, only two of these three million people, Joshua and Caleb, had witnessed God's miracle at the Red Sea. Few believed that God would do it again. I'm sure there were military advisors among the Israelis who wanted Joshua to send out the Corps of Engineers to start erecting bridges and building pontoons. I mean, three million people had to be ferried across these dangerous waters. This was a complicated operation that would take months. But those weren't God's instructions. Notice in verse 5, Joshua tells the nation, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua knew that a miracle was needed. And he knew that God would provide one. And so rather than waste money and time and volunteerism on what would make no difference at all, why not take some action that really mattered? You know, I'm convinced that church folks particularly waste so much brain power and manpower on plans and contingencies and possibilities that really don't count. You know, if I wanted, I could attend a Christian conference on some topic every single week of the year. They're out there. Christians love to sit around and listen to people talk about theories. But when God goes into action, none of those theories come into play. And sadly, we leave stuff undone that really does matter, like prayer, and like recommitment, and like worship, and like spiritual warfare, our sanctification. You see, to overcome obstacles, you've got to admit your helplessness. You've got to focus on God's presence. Then sanctify yourself. And then wait on specific instructions. You see, a portion of Joshua's marching orders could have been gleaned from the Scriptures. The law of Moses instructed the Levites to properly transport the ark. But nowhere in the Bible that Joshua possessed did God tell him to take the ark to the river's edge and step into the water. Likewise, our knowledge of the Scripture conveys to us basic instruction. But a listening ear and an eagerness to obey and and experience waiting on the Holy Spirit is what provides us the specific direction that we need. You See, here's how this works. The Bible gives clear instruction for a troubled marriage. Don't you bail. Don't try to escape. Stay put. Remain committed. Husband, love your wife. And wife, submit to your husband. That's Bible truth. But the Holy Spirit then comes and He applies that biblical truth in specific ways. He convicts a husband of how he's been selfish and gives him some new ideas for becoming sensitive to his wife. He speaks to a wife about her independent streak and shows her how she can trust in her husband. You see, God always gets specific when we listen and when we care about His will. And this is how breakthroughs occur. When we follow God's precise instructions. Which leads us to our final point. Once you admit your powerlessness and focus on God's presence and renew your commitment and get those specific instructions, then all that's left at that point is to take a deliberate step of faith. In fact, without that step of faith, nothing you've done prior will have any effect. You've got to act on what you believe. There comes that point. 
the exact moment the priest's toes dipped into the water, not a second sooner, not an instant later, the exact moment those toes touched water, the current flowing southward came to a screeching halt and was suctioned back upstream in the opposite direction. It was like a vacuum right back upstream. It just goes to prove real faith dares to get its feet wet. Faith knows that to cross boundaries, to gain new territory, to go where you've never been before, you can't be too anchored to familiar ground. You see, to get to another shore, you've got to step off a solid bank and risk a moving current. At God's insistence, it requires a step of faith. Heard of a farmer who had an old well and an old dog. And he wanted to put them both out of commission. When the dog fell into the well, the farmer figured this was a good idea. He could fill in the hole and bury the dog at the same time. But when dirt started raining down on the dog, it made the canine mad. How dare his master try to bury him alive? And after a few shovels of dirt hit the dog in the back, he had an idea. He would shake it off and step up. Every time dirt hit him, he'd just shake it off and step up. Until finally the dog stepped up and walked out of the well. You see, there are no limits for a person who will shake it off and step it up. Here's the truth this morning. Life is an oak horse. And people of influence learn how to hurdle the obstacles. Whatever your Jordan River happens to be, Admit you need a miracle. You need God's help. Fix your eyes on Jesus, on His presence. Sanctify yourself. Recommit your heart. Listen for those special instructions. Then step out in faith and get a foot wet. People of influence have faith to cross over their Jordan River. Father, we thank you for your words today. And we thank you, Lord, for an encouraging section of scripture lord we pray that we can take these truths and we can apply them lord to the jordan river that we face so many of us lord are trapped by barriers and boundaries and limitations lord forgive us for not having the faith lord to get a foot wet to leave behind the familiar and to step out into a moving current and to trust you lord to make a way lord you are a god who makes the way you're good at making the way Lord, I pray that you'll give us faith that believes that. Lord, that we can leave behind what's holding us back, cross over those boundaries in our lives, break through those barriers. Lord, help us to cross over whatever the Jordan River is in our life. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you're still working miracles and you want to do great things in our heart and life today. We pray that you will. By your Spirit, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord this morning.